pre-COVID, the total grocery online penetration, including all of the major players, Ocado, Tesco, and everyone who delivers, only accounts for 7%. It's just extraordinary when, you know, we go to do talks now at our old school and you see these 18-year-old kids at sixth form just glued to their phones. And these kids have they've grown up with smartphones, whereas we didn't. Do we really think that 93% of them will be doing their grocery shopping offline? It's just never going to happen. It's a tough time for many businesses during the pandemic, but one sector in particular is thriving. The world of delicious food delivered to your doorstep. And whilst there are those that rely on things like Ocado, even the business pivoting their models to welcome Deliveroo and Uber Eats like your local Nisa or if you're feeling fancy M&S, the demand for food delivered to your door so you don't have to risk going into a supermarket is an unparalleled. And that's why it's an exciting opportunity to chat to the founders of two brilliant brands, Mindful Chef and All Plants, in this week's Secret Leaders. Now, Mindful Chef was founded by three school friends, Giles, Miles, and Rob, in 2015 with the mission of making healthy eating easy. They scaled from their apartment to 5 million meals delivered and a £75 million ARR in just five years, having raised a total of £9 million. And if you think that sounds good, you can surely imagine what's been happening to their demand right now. Meanwhile, All Plants was launched by brothers JP and Alex in 2017 and have already served 1 million plus meals and recently launched Europe's largest dedicated plant-based kitchen, a massive project and investment in December, which sets them up to scale to 50 million plus. Hot on the heels of Beyond Meat's IPO, All Plants set a world record crowdfund campaign in February in 2019. All Plants are taking plant-based to the mainstream. Over two-thirds of All Plants customers aren't vegan or veggie at all. They just want to try eating more plants. Without further fanfare, this is how we're going to run today's session. Each of you is going to please share a five-minute intro of your story to date. We've just got the high-level view of where you are now, um, but going back to where it all started, your why and your how, one at a time, and then we'll get into the topic of where we are today. So, you know, I guess take us up to January because the majority will cover from January onwards. So, Giles, if you'd like to start with your rocket ship and your riveting story, tell us about your journey with Mindful Chef, please. Our rocket ship. Okay. So it all started, as you, as you mentioned, the three of us, myself, Miles and Rob, three school friends from Devon. We all went our separate ways, uh, different universities after school. And it was in the summer of 2014 that we got together. Um, we were actually just back home, um, all working in London, but we were back home because Devon is so damn beautiful. And uh, we were on, on a French fishing boat called the Compass Rose, which um, is a, just a, uh, the friends are actually... Uh, a local fishing family and we were out there just helping them out it was it was one of those just fun days out on, on a summer's uh, august day and basically we saw them landing the fresh fish and we thought this is interesting they basically text all the local villagers sent around an sms to about 500 local villagers and just said this is what we've caught today come on down to the dock and, and get your fresh fish and we thought that was the kind of moment where we, we saw this amazing fresh produce being landed and handed straight from trawler to the, the villagers. And we thought, oh, well, how can you how can you kind of reimagine the supply chain and uh, I guess take this amazing produce that we have around uh, the British shores and around British farms and um, essentially get it to more people than just a local village. And so we, we, we got thinking. And it was in uh, late 2014 that we we came across recipe boxes in America initially. And we thought, this is interesting. There's this movement where it was actually some friends who said in New York, particularly, they said, do you know what? 
every apartment block has loads of recipe boxes like popping popping in the in the lobbies what's going on people aren't visiting grocery stores as much and we we explored it and we found that in the uk there's um there was two big players there was uh gusto and HelloFresh, both of whom were heavily funded at the time one was rocket internet incubated and we thought this is interesting quite a competitive market we love the idea but you're mad to go up against the likes of rocket internet when there's when you're three mates from school with no money and uh and you're living in this tiny apartment in uh, waterloo and we we basically looked at the market and and one of our biggest pain points as a trio was eating healthily in general was pretty tough i mean who does want to eat healthily pretty much everyone does but it's just quite hard to stick to i particularly was finishing work late i was at mnc sarchi at the time just like lots of people in london and other cities around the uk you get home late you you're knackered you're tired you reach for the usual bag of pasta as you're walking by a, a local tesco express or whatever and we just decided that actually let's make it all about healthy eating so we we looked at the market and we decided that uh, there was a, a genuine opportunity when we tested the other boxes we found that they would just load them with a lot of refined carbs we call them cheap stodgy fillers but essentially we thought do you know what people eat a lot of refined carbs anyway so white rice bread pasta etc we thought give people something that's that's slightly healthier and that they can they can have a kind of credit and debit system in their head as consumers. You have a few drinks at the weekend, you have burgers, you have pasta, you have a swag bowl. And then come come Mondays, generally people, after overindulging a bit, they want to reset a little bit and, and kickstart the week, probably with a, uh, a workout and some healthier food. So that was the kind of genesis of the idea was to just to make healthy eating easy. And we, we built the whole whole brand around healthy eating, hence the, the name Mindful Chef. And I guess getting to a short version of the story, we launched, again, it was just three of us in the apartment. I quit my job first. We started in this tiny little warehouse in Earlsfield, um, which is in southwest London. And uh, we, we started delivering the 10 boxes ourselves in this kind of Del Boy Trotter three-wheeler three style of van. Uh, one of us was on, you know, running the Instagram account. One of us was uh, driving the van and it was it was very cowboy. But we, we thought, hey, just go for it, you know, MVP, get something off the ground and see what sticks. And uh, we started delivering boxes and we went from, you know, 10 boxes to 20 to 30. It was very much friends and family for 2015, very much beta phase. And we wanted to learn loads about the market and see whether people actually wanted healthy meals and there was there was a demand there even though there was two pretty big boys in our space we still managed to uh muscle in and say look guys they're doing their thing they're, they're loading the boxes with loads of um loads of cheap fillers but do you know what we'll we'll add some a healthy dynamic and uh let's let's see who wants it and and that was kind of how it, how it all started really and we we were quite lucky in that we got to about a year in where and an angel investor emailed us out of the blue and just said uh you guys fancy investment it was it was pretty quick from there i guess we we crowdfunded once after that on um on cedars we raised uh, a million in the summer of 2016 on cedars uh which was awesome did that in 10 days and uh sir andy murray became an investor which was great and victoria pendleton cbe so had a couple of the, the the country's greatest sports stars who invested through cedars and then again 18 months later in uh, 2017 in october 2017 we crowdfunded on crowdcube this time because everyone asks everyone everyone wants to know which one's which one's better so we thought we'll try both uh, that time we raised two million and we grew the business from from there again. And every time we kept on just innovating and adding to the range and, and and trying to learn as much as possible. So those were our two principal rounds up until about a year ago where we were approached by um, Piper Private Equity. And we took our Series A uh, and raised six million from them, taking us to the total of nine. 
and and here we are today, really in in unprecedented times. Who's the uh, who's the best chef out of the three of you? I'd actually have to give it to Miles. He is Miles. Yeah. Miles is actually pretty damn good. We we, we all... was it was it his job at the beginning to come up with the recipes? No, it wasn't actually. We well in the very beginning, yes, and then we very quickly our employee number one was uh, we realised that we were pretty average chef. So employee number one was um, our first uh, chef, Louisa, who's still with us today. <laughs> All right, JP, can you match that? Yeah, so firstly, I wasn't uh, born a vegan, of course. I, I grew up having Sunday roast and with long summers at meze tables with my Cypriot family eating halloumi, calamari, suvlakia. So for me, actually, like some people, my journey started when I, um, I agreed to, or I offered actually to eat veggie to impress a girl, uh, Delphi, who's now my wife. But that was just at home and, you know, I was still uh, making sure that I could enjoy a good steak or a, a burger when I was out and about because, you know, I was, I was a guy and I was manly. Um, and, you know, the weird thing at the time was, and it is seven or eight years ago, I was uh, in the middle of launching a healthcare chain, of, you know, medical centers focused on wellness, medicine and diet. And, you know, I'd read actually quite a few books and watched documentaries about the quite horrific truth of what happens inside factory farms. But... It's weird, you know, you just park that stuff and somewhere and ignore it because, you know, cheese tastes so good and, and change is hard. So it was then about five years ago where in the space of a week, I kind of, I don't know, I thrust myself down a deep rabbit hole learning about the enormously destructive environmental impact animal agriculture has on us and our planet. You know, it's far, far bigger emitter uh, of, of carbon than all of transport put together that's airlines trucks cars boats trains you name it you know and I, I pretty quickly realized that kind of like electric cars or solar power the only viable future for life on this planet is a fully plant-based food system for all and so with that realization I, I suppose I drew myself into a corner of logic and had to act I, I couldn't really get my head around becoming vegan straight away it seemed far too difficult and uh, odd um, so I started with a one-week experiment to eat veggie and then actually when I caught up with my brother Alex that weekend I found out he'd actually watched some of the same films as me that week and he'd already gone from zero to one vegan overnight so I of course very quickly rolled into uh, a month of testing out eating 100% vegan and you know I've, I've never looked back I suppose at first if you if you enjoy cooking and have the time to learn whole new recipes, then it can be a really awesome adventure, you know, discovering the latest and greatest plant-based eats. But man, as, as soon as I was busy, I'd find myself coming out of any local food shop with, at best, a bag of carrots and a pot of hummus, which is their only quick vegan meal there, right? And, you know, far, far too often. I, and I love hummus, but that gets pretty bland and boring eventually. And I also pretty quickly got frustrating I guess almost bored of wasting my time explaining or trying to champion any of the health or ethical environmental reasons to eat more plants um, it just fell on deaf ears and it got me into arguments with lots of good friends and family but what I did find is instead if you cooked somebody up a, a, a really delicious uh, barbecue pulled jackfruit or uh, one of our first dishes a cashew cheesy mac or a hearty bolognese all of which of course didn't have any meat or cheese in it, it could really create these powerful light bulb moments. Hang on a sec, but this doesn't have any meat in it, or how can you make this without cream? For me, the reflection was, well, food decisions, even my food decisions, took me a long time, and they carry so much cultural, religious, habitual inertia. Um, and so it's going to take ages for the whole world to start eating this way, and our, our planet simply can't wait. 
and I was convinced that actually it's going to be all about taste buds. Taste buds rule. You know, no, no one's got the time in their day to really think rationally every time they're having to make a food decision. Uh, we need to show people that, man, this is delicious. And actually, it's not a compromise. You don't have to give anything up. And if we can do that, then, then it could create a tidal wave of adoption. So, yeah, and actually, the funny thing is that it, I, I guess I found myself, after building a couple of ventures before, having moved back from Kenya, I'd actually spent a number of pretty painstaking years looking for the right next venture to build. And you know, hacking together MVPs and working with all sorts of different buddies and teams to, to try and find, oh, okay, this is the next thing we'll do. Uh, and I always kind of threw them away quite quickly because I just, they just didn't stand up. And I guess it wasn't until I found a pain point that I was really frustrated with every day, three times a day, and actually a problem and a mission that I would genuinely run through walls for day after day, that it clicked, you know, and I, so I feel really very, very lucky for that. You know, of course, and so I quit all my other projects and, and, and started cooking. And that was, uh, obviously, I'm not a professional chef, so that was fun. Uh, we ran weekly supper clubs um, uh, in the first six months to refine recipes and, and prove that cooking from frozen, not just cooking amazing vegan food, could be as good as a restaurant food experience. Uh, because I really believed in the fact that, although at, at one stage we were thinking about creating a restaurant uh, or chain of restaurants, that actually I wanted to build something that could scale way faster. And I'd been looking at D to C, and or actually I call it chef to customer now, you know, for a while for lots of other ideas. But, you know, we really wanted something that could scale a movement fast. Uh, so, so, yeah, so in, in the next few months, we, we built our first kitchen very quickly and got ourselves launched and shipping nationwide on time for Veganuary in 2017. And we've been creating new recipes ever since. And, you know, now having started with six recipes, today we have over 50 across breakfast, lunch, dinner and desserts and launching new recipes every month. Uh, everything's handmade by our fantastic chefs in in London, and you know we've already won dozens of culinary awards, and that 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 really means a lot to us because we because we do everything we can to push the creative and flavor boundaries with real natural good food. You know, there's, there's something you'd cook at home if you had the time and could be bothered to go and get all these unusual and exotic, elegant ingredients. And you know, most importantly and excitingly, from year one, we found that over two thirds of our new customers weren't vegan or veggie at all. And that's the same as today. And, you know, actually, they're just keen to have a few vegan-ish days a week. And, you know, we make that easy, healthy, and delicious for you. And that's the impact we're most excited about. And that's how we can really move the movement forward. And so, so yeah, and, and, and actually, most recently, uh, you know, we, we literally a couple of months ago, uh, just at the start of the year, built and moved into, finally, Europe's largest dedicated plant-based kitchen, uh, which has been a long time in the making. And so it's really exciting having everything under the one roof and it's really now starting to allow us to cook a lot of fantastic food. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. 
Banter automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secret leaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secret leaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI. But until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. You know, I think a really interesting question I want to ask both of you is assuming, and we'll talk about it, but assuming this is an especially challenging time in the business, positively challenging, I'd imagine, for both of you. But up until January, or I should say January, up until really the the pandemic seemed likely, so leading up to lockdown, what were some of the hardest moments for you? What did what did like real headaches look like until now? So Giles, starting with you, what like obviously I'm assuming this has reframed it, so let us know. Yeah, it certainly has reframed it. I would say one of the biggest challenges and, and it and it's often overlooked is just the operations of a recipe box. So right now we're probably doing about 1.2 million ingredients every week through our warehouse. If I if I if, if you take one avocado, one lime, that's one ingredient. We're doing over a million of them coming in and then being packed into about 5,000 different box combinations. That is incredibly complex, and that's probably the biggest challenge for our business is just getting all of that perishable working to a just-in-time model coming into your warehouse from suppliers all over the UK, and then and then getting it out on time to the right customers in amazing shape. That's very complex. And I think uh, it's safe to say in the early days, we, we completely underestimated the, the complexities of a recipe box model. And I, it's probably why there's only, there's only really three in the UK that are, that are still going, because it's in, incredibly hard. But if you do crack it, it's, it's amazing for the end consumer because you've done all the hard work for them. And there's all sorts of benefits like food waste, et cetera. But I would say the biggest, yeah, the biggest challenge for us has been operationally ensuring that we can get through those pretty tough times. And like, has there been a moment in the business uh, that you've just been like, well, this is possibly the worst day we've had yet? <laughs> Actually, uh, name drop here, but we, we did a, Miles and I did a, went on Fern Cotton's Happy Place podcast about a month ago. And she asked this question and it took me back to, yeah, probably one of the darkest days, which was 
I can't remember exactly when it was, but it was when we were still delivering a lot of the, the, the boxes uh, ourselves through our own career network. We, we basically tried to build our own career network, uh, have since departed from that and use, use the guys who know what they're doing, <laughs> um, like DPD. But when we did it ourselves and we used a few, a few other couriers, it was, I think it might have been 2017-ish. We had one day where Black Friday was just becoming this big thing, generally, and um, we sent out, I, I can't remember how many, but it would have been low hundreds. And uh, the boxes went out. We had been packing them all day. And we used to get up and go to the warehouse on um, Saturdays and Sundays used to be our packing days. Now we pack seven days a week. But we used to do it when it was just us and an army of friends and and uh, agency staff. We used to do kind of 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. every Saturday and then 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. Sunday packing hands on and then we would go home and man the phones and I remember we would take it in turns to basically man the phones coming through to our mobile and I remember on the Black Friday weekend where one of our couriers just rang us and we had our own couriers and we also had an unnamed uh, national courier who we're not with anymore and um, they just rang up and said we're not going to be able to get about 400 of your boxes out we've just completely underestimated Ooh. Black Friday in general and I said, sorry, what do you mean? And they just said, I'm really sorry. They just sat at the depot and they're not going to go. So slowly this mobile phone started going off the hook from, from customers. And I remember just sat there with my, my now fiance and I just looked at Charlotte. And I, just, I just said, oh, I honestly don't know how to deal with this. Miles was manning the inbox. I was manning the phones. And you just had all these unhappy customers saying, where's my food? I've planned on this for tonight. And I had to just say, we can't get it to you. And of course we... We went back to the drawing board over the weekend, got more stock in and, and sent out replacement boxes. But dealing with people that kind of the phones went till about two in the morning, people asking where their boxes were, that was a pretty low moment. Yeah, that sounds absolutely miserable. Wouldn't want to be you that day. Uh, JP, you've got a uh, cringe all over your face like something similar has happened to you. But I guess, you know, same question to you. So up until up until now, uh, what does difficult look like? Yeah, I mean, we've had um, some really hairy... In fact, the, the reason I was smiling while Giles was saying that is that we've had Black Friday blowouts as well, and uh, they really got us bad. And we've also had um, one of the Februaries when snow came in like crazy. It completely shut down distribution around the UK for about two weeks, um, and we lost an enormous amount of stock, and we let down thousands of customers and at the time we had almost no money and so it was like what do you do and how do you compensate people and you basically end up giving as much food away as you can to to make people happy so that was really tough i'd probably say though that the 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 toughest moments have been when you know there's pretty much every time we run a financing as you're closing you you're closing but you and you're 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 having to uh, act like everything's hunky-dory and particularly on the hunky-dory front like you have a cash balance that you're completely sound and comfortable with and that there's not a concern at all but the reality is that you're almost always trading a negative cash balance and uh that that is just part of the crazy journey of venture building where we go through these burn periods uh and then access a new round of funding if you've actually earned it and, and I think, you know, there's been a couple of times in those periods, particularly when we're closing our A, um, where I had to take a large number of loans from family members and friends who I really did not want to borrow from. I was completely, I was done. Like, I had nothing else to offer. Um, and so I felt really stretched at that point. And I, I mean, we wouldn't be here if my dad, my uncle, and a number of my mates hadn't put what they did in to just keep us afloat. So th those, those times are tough and you know, I think as you mature as a company, those times should diminish and become less frequent. Here's hoping.
Yeah, well, I guess you've got a different problem now. So, you know, taking it forward from from January. So I think this is, you know, really where the meaty stuff of the story comes from, because sadly, a lot of people are obviously suffering. A lot of our guests that we've had um, so far on this series and secret leaders um, are suffering. Their businesses are completely having to pivot or are screwed. Certainly some of the guests we've got coming up and we've decided, you know, we definitely want to pepper the series with um, or season the series, I should say, with some exciting stories where there is a lot of change having to happen. But, uh, you know, in businesses that were already going well, now the whole consideration about um, how to scale and how to serve customers is drastically changed. So uh, let's start with you then, Giles. Um, what does it look like since the pandemic started? Um, what kind of decisions have you had to make? What kind of what kind of increase in numbers are you seeing? We started to see an uptick in in uh, late Feb. We saw a big bounce around about fifteenth of March, which was just prior to uh, Boris's lockdown. Before that, I guess it's worth pointing out that one one of the biggest um, things holding back groceries going online in general is the extraordinarily low uh, penetration rates. So pre-COVID, the total grocery online penetration. So there's about 200 to 220 billion spent on groceries, not including restaurants and takeaways, et cetera, but groceries, including all of the major players, Ocado, Tesco, and everyone who delivers, and recipe boxes. Online penetration only accounts for 7% of that total. So a lot of people, when you ask them, think, oh, probably 20%, 30%, but it's actually only 7%. And, and one of the, it's one of the reasons why we got really excited back in 2015, 2016, was we were thinking, it's just extraordinary when you know we go to do talks now at our old school and you see these 18-year-old kids at sixth form just glued to their phones. And these these kids, have they've grown up with smartphones, whereas people of our generation on this call, we didn't, right? And so it's quite amazing that to think that when those kids are, are adults in the working world in five years' time, for example, do, do we really think that 93% of them will be doing their grocery shopping offline? It's just never going to happen. And so that, that was the interesting thing pre-COVID. Obviously, um, groceries, because it's fresh and it's touching produce on shelves, etc., is obviously going to take a longer time to increase its penetration online compared to the likes of travel and fashion, etc. That's why it's lagged a little bit. But the, it's the largest vertical consumer spending. So it's it's absolutely ginormous. The opportunity is huge. It's just taken a while. And, and obviously, you have Ocado leading the way. Fantastic. Doing great things. Licensing tech across the world. But generally, it's just been quite slow because there's all sorts of challenges. And um, when COVID came along, I mean, but by our measure, we think it, it, it may well have dragged the industry as a whole. I'm not just talking about recipe boxes, but the industry as a whole forward anywhere between. I mean, there's various guesses at the moment essentially there's various analysts working across the globe giving their predictions but i've seen figures ranging from the the industry being dragged forward between three to ten years i mean literally overnight it's essentially forced consumers who have never bought one grocery shop online to go well i might as well try this because there's queues around the block for my supermarket which has got nothing in it and every restaurant in the land is closed so let me, let me give it a go and and i guess um, to get back to your question and to kind of sum up what we've seen, 15th of March, it just went bananas. We, the website traffic went through the roof. It took us, it took us about five years to build a business up to 25 million in revenues. And then in, in, in three weeks, we tripled it to 75. Wow. So, I mean, that that's kind of shows you the, the enormous growth that we're seeing. Now, we obviously know that 
we probably won't stay at that level. We're currently at that level, but we know that it, we're in the middle of a huge boom and I'm sure it will it will level out somewhat. I think it's just hilarious that the first thought people have is, holy shit, I don't want to cook my own food or go to a supermarket. I need to get a recipe box. To be fair, that is the first thing I thought as well is how, how many different types of meals can I possibly eat in all plants in the same week? Maybe I should learn to cook. Yeah, we saw... We, we, we saw uh, <laughs> We saw a huge, not not just new customers, but obviously current customers as well. All of our active customers prior to that, they, they all started doubling down and buying with us. You can buy up to five meals a week. So people who would normally buy two or three were going, right, you know, I want five and our average order, order value and our basket, basket sizes went through the roof. That's normalized a bit now as people realize there's more, more food on shelves in supermarkets. But um the customer numbers are still there because they have a genuine need and the awareness has just been just been boosted by covid so we're in a it's a very interesting time it's hard you know you can't say it's hard to say exciting because of everyone going through this tough time people being furloughed people people dying which is one one of the most um sad sad parts of it but i think for our industry it's dragged it forward by by a number of years and i'm sure jp will say the same thing it's 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 just put us on the map to a lot of people who would love the service that we provide, but just never heard of us because when you actually consider a mindful chef versus the revenues of a Tesco or a Cardo, you're still pretty tiny. Yeah, I saw a lot of companies had to close to new customers. Have you both been able to keep the doors open for new customers as well as your existing customers? Yeah, I mean, we did everything we could on that front, Rich, but after a very similarly timed spike, as Giles described, <laughs> in the build-up to, and then from the moment Boris made his announcement, pretty much, our acquisition went up by 8x overnight. And, and we simply, we can't sustain that because we can't 8x our kitchen output overnight. Um, and so we, we managed to keep trading for about uh, seven or eight days. And then we turned off marketing for over two weeks, completely off, absolutely nothing. And still the organic sales were higher than we've ever had anywhere. So our CAC was <laughs> a delightful uh, and ludicrously low level. Um, but we also felt, uh, you know, we certainly weren't able to make hay while the sun shines because we just, we can't suddenly quintuple our kitchen output. But, but, the, but the, other, the other key thing going on here, and I guess Giles alluded to it, is aside from the massive increase in even testing adoption into uh, the category of food online, um, the reality is that the total addressable market, at least in the short term, has rocketed. So, so let's talk about some of the practical stuff. I'm assuming inside your factories, you guys are having to adhere to the rule set by the government as well around social distancing. So it's not even as if the capacity you have in your kitchens can be operated with more food. Like people actually have to space out in between there. And I know literally just from the supply chain of, of creating our product, which is nowhere near um, as technical as yours in that sense, like our production runs slow down because people have to be two meters apart from each other. And that's not even food. So I'm just, you know, I'd love to know some of the practical, practical and real experiences you guys are seeing inside the companies in terms of um, increasing volume and physical space. Yeah, I mean, I'll go first. I'm sure very similar again. But um, from our perspective, two key challenges, really, as JP said, you, you don't just ATEX overnight because it's not like we're both selling razor blades, uh, like a DSC or someone with 100,000 of them sat in a warehouse with 
which can stay there for months and months. We, you know, we're operating just in time models. So in our case, obviously, it's loads of fresh food coming in to be packed. One of the biggest challenges we had overnight was our protein lines. And particularly for us, it's in our name, Mindful Chef. But one of our biggest differences to HelloFresh and Gusto outside of the, the, the healthy angle is uh, quality. So we will only ever use free range chicken, grass fed heritage beef, all of our produce is from the UK, sustainably caught fish, etc. So suddenly, if we go from where we were beforehand with uh, our chicken farms, for example, amazing free range chicken farm out in Norfolk, we ring them up and say, by the way, orders have tripled overnight. They just can't, they just can't sustain that. They can't turn it on. It's not like producing something in a factory. So essentially, we have to, we have to then go out and basically for about two weeks, we just spent the entire time speaking to new new suppliers and working on that supply chain across the board. And as, as I alluded to, we're up to about 1.2 million ingredients coming through a week now into our operations hub. So this is these are vast quantities and vast sums across all of our lines, whether it's the plants, the proteins, etc. And I think that was one of the, the biggest things was, was being able to dial that up. And then just on that point, I presume that there's actually plenty of suppliers out there. It's not like the food's not there because this food was going to restaurants and you're perhaps working with suppliers that were, were supplying that industry. Correct. Yeah. So obviously as the supermarkets were keen to point out when people went bananas and started panic buying, there's enough food to go around for everyone. It was just that overnight uh, someone flicked a switch and every single restaurant, pub, bar, cafe in the country had to close. And therefore there was all this food that was in supply chains destined for those guys. And it just, they had to rework the supply chains and it just takes a while because it's incredibly complex behind the scenes. In our case, we have direct relationships with growers, with veg growers, with, with the chicken farms and the, and the fishermen, etc. So we obviously took all the stock we could from those guys. And then we just had, I mean, in one case, if you take chicken, uh, one of our, our buying team literally rang 65 free range chicken farms in the UK and just wouldn't put the phone down until he could get every single free range chicken we could get. And JP, I'm guessing very similar story, but you know, what's what's it been like? Yeah, so I, I guess we've had a lot of uh, what Giles described, and I guess the, the, the slight in, increase in intensity is that it's actually our staff at our kitchen, as opposed to you know with a partner, which is uh, it, it raises the bar a bit in terms of us feeling quite responsible. And one of the key things we had to do, uh, that, and that was tough to navigate, was. Because uh, we're all under one roof now that we're in uh, our HQ, which we call the greenhouse, where we do all the cooking and and everything else. And actually deciding that, you know, over half our team would, would go remote, but then everyone who was part of the food operation would stay and continue to come to work was was really uh, quite a uh, an important message to get right with our team. Um, and I ended up basically, I, I guess I found, and I'm sure uh, this will resonate with a lot of other people trying to, work their way through this is, is that we've had to go to whole new levels of uh, availability and frequency of communication and transparency so just constant all hands almost uh, to explain look this is what the latest guidance is this is what's changed this is why we're still coming here to work a lot of our chefs are Spanish and Italian um, and they were you know, they had the experience from their family and friends from three or four weeks before, and so they were really freaked out. And we started having to uh, not just provide for people isolating with symptoms, but also where they had stress about the fear of getting symptoms. So for the first three or four weeks, we had a good 35 to 40% of our staff uh, isolating or recovering from symptoms, which at a time when 
demand is surging, it's particularly hard to handle. And so uh, fortunately, we were able to recruit um, dozens and dozens of new chefs into the team and train them up quickly, all who'd uh, just lost their roles in restaurants all across London. And so we've actually ended up with a very, very highly skilled workforce who are able to cover during this time, which has been great, and the team are loving it. And, uh, and, and what I've found certainly is that it's been uh, alongside all of our food operations, shift managers and leadership, we just had to roll our sleeves up and really be very present and available for everyone to support them because the work they're doing is the most important, which is to keep us cooking. Uh, you know, there was a few dicey days where we looked like we were actually going to be completely stocked out. Uh, but we just about managed to get through it on an even keel. Um, and we're starting to be in a slightly better controlled position now where we can get back to forecasting and, you know, trying our best to predict what's needed and, and, and grow to it. So I guess similar to, to asking you, Giles, but, you know, you succinctly pointed out health and culture, which I just assumed are the two biggest, um, you know, concerns. So, you know, you mentioned JP, like a bunch of your team did have concerns with or suspected cases of COVID um, and that has given you the opportunity to hire loads of new people. And I'm assuming off the back of that, you know, a big influx of new people into a team um, creates a really interesting culture dynamic for you as a leader that's, you know, had a plan about how to uh, onboard people, etc. And I'm assuming that a lot of that has gone out the window just to match demand. Uh, so, I guess the first question to you, JP, is like, what has that actually been like? And then, you know, to, to Giles, uh, you know, same question, but also just understanding like the health of your team, how that's been impacted and how you've dealt with that. Yeah, the um, fortunately, over the last few months, we've actually we had just done a big upgrade to the way we onboard into the kitchen uh, because we'd already from December through to February, 2.5 X our kitchen production in those two months. So we'd had to do some rapid hiring then. Um, and, uh, and, and so we were able to take a bit of a continuation of that. I think one of the key things that supports us as well is that we've now got in uh, Roberto and Steve and James and Martin, who are, they'll hopefully uh, be happy to get name checked, just brilliant uh, shift management and operational management. And so they really do a very good job of setting the tone and having making sure all of their deputies are all over, both the coaching up of people and then also the kind of... Um, the performance management in the early days of someone uh, joining a team. So that part's been relatively stable. Um, the creation of uncertainty and the fear, particularly in the early days, again, of like, are we all going to lose our jobs? Are we going to shut down? What does this mean? Uh, that the only way we found, and, and certainly this was true for our uh, fully remote team, 50, 60 people as well, um, was that we just had to be super transparent and super continuous as things evolved with saying where we were at. And, and actually acknowledging, most importantly, we didn't really know, but we would we would be explaining as soon as we did in terms of answering questions as to how people can ensure uh, they have a, a job or they're, that they're allowed to uh, take the seven days or 14 days isolating if a housemate has suspected symptoms, for example. So we had to be really front foot with that stuff and just constantly sharing how we would approach it. Giles, how's it been for you? Yeah, it's been very similar. I mean... So aside from obviously the operational challenges, uh, and that's our site in the Midlands, we obviously have the core team in, in London. We actually decided to send everyone home and work from home as an entire office about 10 days prior. There was a period where you'll probably remember loads of businesses were, were building up to it and foreseeing it coming. So 
we were about 10 days ahead of the government announcement, um, which allowed everyone to get into the pattern of getting used to working from home. And fortunately, in this this day and age, you know, with Zoom calls and, and whatnot, I think it's it, it's much easier. And incidentally, I think we'll, we'll see a bit of a shift post post COVID in, in terms of working patterns across various sectors. But for us, we had to heavily pad out our customer care team. So that went from around about seven staff to around about 20. Um, so we very quickly had to hire a load of customer customer care agents who uh, we had to then get them to work remotely. So none, so some of those guys have never seen our office. It's quite a strange dynamic. I think the one way we try to approach it, which is exactly how JP said he approached it, is you've got to be super transparent, open and honest. And in our case, we're all new to this game, right? So we, we've been building we've been building a business for the last five years. Um, none of us profess to be experts at it, and there's no right or wrong. You can read as many books and listen to as many podcasts as you want, but you learn along the way. And, and the best way of of learning is doing it on the job. So in our case, we felt I mean, culture is very important to us, and we've we've worked hard at it over the years. And it's something that comes with making sure that you you look after people from the minute they walk in the door. But in this instance, obviously, it's quite difficult when they're not meeting the rest of the team face to face. You're doing everything digitally and virtually. Um, it's some examples of how we tackled it. The phone lines and the emails were coming so thick and fast during the, the key two to three weeks of the crisis that um, we were training up customer care agents, some of whom living who lived in Australia, so they could go, they could work through the night for us. So we had a so we had a 24 hour cover across of our across our customer care channels. So our head of customer service services, Siobhan, um, who's UK based, Siobhan would she would be sat up with Miles, my co-founder, and they would be up at one in the morning for two weeks straight, training up these agents and bringing them on board and welcoming them and talking them through our values, etc., and our mission. And then, but but more importantly. Aside from all that, actually getting them up to speed with helping to manage the task at hand. So it was pretty complex. And now it's time for some good news on Secret Leaders. Uh, We're going to feature just two stories this week because they're pretty compelling and they deserve the right airtime. Now, as a reminder, we ask you every week to share your good news stories with me on Twitter at Dan Murray Serta for a chance to feature your good news in the show during the crisis. Now, described by Men's Fitness as the Goldman Sachs, Real Madrid and Apple of personal training, Nick Mitchell's ultimate performance, the world's leading global personal training business, has had to do some considerable pivoting, as you might expect. They've now developed their body transformation process program for lockdown. Just go to upfitness.co.uk to learn more and work out with the best trainers in the world at home. Also, huge kudos to Hamer Shepherd, the co-founder of bridebook.co.uk, who came up with the idea of furlontier.com. Think furlough and volunteer. Now, as a fact, up to 9 million UK employees are being furloughed. Thousands of charities and good causes need more help than ever. Furloughed employees are allowed to volunteer, and the majority of furloughed employees want to make an impact, stay busy, and help during this terrible crisis. So, furlontier.com connects furloughed employees with charities and good causes that need their help. Now, Oxfam has furloughed two-thirds of its team. Duty to Care, which provides mental health support to NHS workers, needs more help than ever. And thousands of charities and causes are also in this scenario. Now, furlontier.com can help solve this. Because he's busy with his own company, he and his wife put a beta site together on Wix and stuck it live and asked an applicant called Sam to run it, who 10 days later has already built a team of 20 people. 
Now they've been on Sky News, BBC, and indeed Secret Leaders, and they have thousands of furlonged here applicants and place people into a hundred plus amazing charities. So if you want to join and spread the word, please do go to furlonteer.com and help people, help charities, and help society. Now, if you want to feature on our next week's episode, just follow me at Dan Murray Serta on Twitter or LinkedIn and look out for these threads asking for good news. Now back to the show. So um, I want to wrap up, guys, because, um, it, well, basically because you've taken us up to today, you guys are doing a brilliant job of, of leadership and handling what is a crazy scenario with physical supply chains, amazing, delicious food still being delivered to people regularly. So I just want to know uh, some, like, I guess, quick rapid fire answers. We'll start with just you, Giles. So what is the biggest mistake you've made on your journey so far? sending we launched our vegan range in uh january 2016 uh and sending 50 vegan boxes to journalists and press uh with ice packs that were a bit slit so when they turned up <laughs> virtually every single editor who got sent a uh, a vegan box the box basically fell through the bottom it was soaking oh, and everything the contents fell through the bottom we got emails from the times and and uh, the mail saying thanks for the parcel but um it fell out on the floor in the office. Yeah, I like thought you were about mail. to say that, that there was some like shredded beef in the vegan uh, <laughs> box or something like that. That would have been... <laughs> not, not quite that bad, but very, equally ja- very bad. Charles has definitely tried that trick on me before. I'm yeah, sure. Rich, Rich would take that box. He'd be yeah. delighted. He'd yeah, be like, this vegan got, food's yeah. not so bad. <laughs> <laughs> okay, what's the biggest mistake you fear that's yet to come? Uh, me again. Yeah, we'll do you first, and then we'll take JP. So JP can learn not to not to make any of the same mistakes as you. He gets a it gets an early early chance to see. Biggest mistake that I fear is yet to come. I actually think under investing at certain times, um, you obviously have to have the cash in the bank to be able to invest. And as JP alluded to, it's extremely challenging when you're when you're growing a business in in its early years. But I would say there's huge huge opportunity in the online D 2 C. Uh, food space and under investing at key times could be a huge mistake. So you've got to you've got to keep the foot on the gas. And uh, what's the best piece of business advice you've ever been given? Don't try and be everything to everyone. From uh, one of our board members who's still with us from the early days, he was the the former global chief strategy officer for Interbrand, and um, he, yeah, he basically just said, look, don't try and be everything to everyone. You're all about healthy eating make it exclusively about that. Don't try and branch out into things that, that, that don't relate to that. Be very clear in the consumer's, consumer's eye, what you stand for, in our case, healthy eating and making it extremely easy. And then everything else will build on from that. And um, what do you think your biggest development area as a founder is that you've still not nailed? Other than your moustache. God, this sounds like a, like an appraisal. Is this an not? interview? Like, what's going yeah. on? Here? <laughs> it, it is literally an interview, guys. I can't believe it's taken you an hour to realise that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> really? Um, biggest, I would say, because this is, for the three of us founders, this is the first time we've, we've, we've built a business and, and the, the team is rapidly growing now. We were actually, one of our proudest stats was that we got to 10 million in revenues with 10 staff. So we were very proud of being extremely lean. I think the biggest challenge now, as we've have we scaled out very quickly, um, for me personally, is to make sure that that you you can you can look after these staff, you can become a great manager and I guess mentor in some cases, whilst being at the, the cutting edge of the business and trying to grow it. In my case, looking after the marketing, 
that's a big challenge. And I think that's something I've got to work on is making sure that you can really, really look after your team whilst you're going through this roller coaster of a journey and you, you, you're growing at, you know, triple digits every year. I think that that is quite hard to be able to, on the one hand, have that, that kind of crazy adrenaline and, and pressure and pace and investors and board members really pushing you and you put, and you're, you're, you're your own harshest critics, but then at the same time being able to level with the staff and relax with them, look after them, relax with them at the end of the week, et cetera, and, and foster that culture. I think for me personally, that's probably one of the biggest challenges to work on. Okay. And then JP, what's the biggest mistake you've made on your journey so far? It is hard because I definitely make at least a dozen mistakes every day. Um, I, I think one, one of the, the classic advices you always get, and I'm a great believer in, is hiring slow and firing fast, uh, and that it's critical to build a fantastic culture. I think I've definitely uh, managed to get the higher slow part right. It took a really long time to build our uh, leadership team in particular, our management team, but now that it's done fantastic but blimey you know that was that was a real slog it took a good 18 months but i think on fire fast side sometimes it's quite easy to be uh obscured from doing that by the fact that you just bloody need people to do x or y and a good example of that is uh in fact earlier oh, uh, the, the past summer so mid, mid last summer we reached a point with our AM shift because we cook AM and PM 16 hours a day where we realized that actually the entire shift pretty much needed to be let go of. And I then had to have one of my worst days where I sat, had to sit down for back-to-back 30-minute interviews letting go of the entire team because they just had not, we, we hadn't performance management at the right level. And that was a really tough lesson to learn. And what do you think your biggest development area other than being succinct is? I think... Um, What's up? One thing I'm working on at the moment is balancing conviction with curiosity. As a founder, you're expected to really make very strong decisions all the time and know what's right and go for it. Uh, but actually, I think that it can, particularly if you start to have a really high capability team around you, it can reduce the opportunity to learn and to listen to a level that actually gets the best outcomes. And so I don't think it's, it's going to be easy, but it's something I'm trying to, uh, I'm trying to upgrade on. Great. And guys, both of you, um, I'd love to leave with an inspiring message that you fancy leaving to all the business owners out there running businesses during COVID-19, whether positive or negative. So some magical words to end the session. No pressure. Uh, This time we'll be fair. We'll start with JP. So Giles has a moment to think wisely about the words he's going to choose. I don't know um, how relevant this would be for anyone else, but I guess the key thing that uh, I am certainly doing for myself is to try to find uh, the silver lining and try to unearth how we can build back positively, whether that's in our business or in society. And, you know, for us, when, you know, we've talked about online, D2C, grocery, none of that's actually that important to us. For us, what matters is we want the entire world to eat more plants and eventually eat all plants. And, you know, there's a really profound transformation that can happen at a time of catastrophe. And, you know, this is not just an isolated event. This is for the first time ever on this planet, all humanity as one experiencing something completely we we could never have even imagined. And I I feel very hopeful that out of the back of this, um, you know, there will be a heightened consciousness uh, and, and a heightened 
interest and willingness to really start to make the changes that could create a better world. And you know, for us, that means eating more plants and finding a way out of uh, our reliance on meat for, for food. And the way that could transform our planet, whether it just is in the measure of greenhouse gas emissions or leading to a healthier and, and happier planet of hum humans would, would be fantastic. And so that's something that we uh, feel really hopeful and bullish about. Um, and I would encourage anyone else to, to really dig to try to find that um, for themselves. What about yourself, Charles? For me, it would be, and this is probably just as relevant for would-be business owners listening to your podcast. Um, I wish I had listened to a lot more podcasts like this prior to starting Mindful Chef. But for me, it, I think treat this as an opportunity, right? So it's the world essentially has, has gone on pause. It's reset. And it's devastating, but we will get through it everyone will get through. And I think actually it, we might get through it quicker than, than people think. Treat this as an opportunity to, to go out there and do exactly what you want to do. So in, in my situation, I know a lot of friends in nine to five jobs or much longer hours than that jobs in the city, up and down the country who right now they've either been furloughed or sitting at home with you know less on, but they've still luckily got a job. I think lots of those people now are, are kind of reflecting a little bit and obviously, when you're not as crazily busy as some businesses uh, are at this period, you do have a bit more time to think. And my my reflection would be just speaking to, to, to friends in those situations is use this as an opportunity because off the back of it, there will be lots of uh, new industries, new opportunities, um, new areas that spring up. And I think there will be there's opportunities out there for people to to move into stuff they really love and and i know that there's lots of people sat at home enjoying some of the small things in life which i and the, and the kind of simpler things in life which i think uh, is is actually wonderful when you look on social media and you you look at people doing their gardens and reading again and 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 uh spending time with loved ones again which they they haven't done for a while i think use this as an opportunity to to work out what you really love doing in life whether that's starting your own business or going into a venture with a friend or a family member or or just trying to further yourself within your current career whether it's the same in, same industry same company but just pushing yourself a little bit more to something that you really enjoy because this is a real opportunity you don't normally just the entire world just pauses for six eight ten weeks and and then come out of it the other side fresh so i think use this and i think off the back of it hopefully we'll see a lot more positive than negative and it will take time but i think it's quite a bright future and so do i guys thank you so much for your time giles from mindful chef and jp from all plants it's been an absolute pleasure to have you both on i know what i'm having for dinner Half and half, obviously. Okay. All right. Thanks, Thanks so much, guys. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips, and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Next week on Secret Leaders. 
we want to show that business can be a force for good. So we've been using our distillery to make hand sanitizer. So to date, we've made, shipped and donated over 300,000 bottles of medical grade hand sanitizer. We have supplied healthcare charities, we've supplied key frontline workers, and we've also supplied NHS hospitals as well. We're happy to use the resources we have, use the business we have to do what we can to help. We hope you enjoyed this episode. It was brought to you by me, Dan Murray-Serta, producer Rich Martell, editor Harry Morton of Lower Street Media, and marketing by Hannah Russell of Mags Creative and stunning visual design by our talented designer, Christina Naru of smartupvisuals.com. You can check out show notes, transcripts, and our upcoming live events on our website, secretleaders.com. If you've not yet, please hit subscribe, leave us a review, tell a friend, take a screenshot of this episode and add it to an Insta story. I mean, you know what to do. And tag us at Secret Leaders or at Dan Murray Serta, and we will add you to our story in appreciation back. Rich and I put together Secret Leaders for free because we love our day jobs as entrepreneurs, but every time someone takes the time to share it, it means a lot to us. So don't forget, it's the little things like that that keep us coming back every week and every year into the studio. See you next week.